Interview number 106, Michael Reno Harrell, a conversation on American folk music's impact on American storytelling. Thank you, my dear brother. What a beautiful soul. All children love stories. Folk tales, they are messages from our ancestors. Then you have come to the right place. We will have a storyteller in every school. Storytelling can teach. You have that openness of a child. Good on you, Eric, for doing what you're doing. That's a great question. Thank you. I'm inspired just to be here. I'm really honored to be here. We tell stories. Know yourself. Follow your passion. And live with grace. Hey, welcome to the Art of Storytelling with Brother Wolf. And I am so thrilled that you have made it here with me. I'm starting over from the beginning again. And we just did the most beautiful five minutes at the beginning of the show. And we're going to do it again just for you because we like you. I am here with Michael Reno Harrell. I watched... Hey, this is Brother Wolf. And you are listening to The Art of Storytelling with Brother Wolf. And I am so thrilled that you have come here with us. I am so so thrilled that you have found your way here. That you have made the time to come here with us. Because we are talking about something that is so precious so precious to the future of the world, and that is the, the art of storytelling. But not just the art of storytelling, but how the art of storytelling and the art of playing music collides. How those two things live in harmony and how those two things work together. I am sitting here in Jonesboro, Tennessee, and I'm sitting with Michael Reno Harrell. And I watched... Michael Reno last night perform at the National Storytelling Network um, performance. And it was an amazing thing that he did because he had his guitar on him. And I looked at him and I thought any moment he's going to start playing this guitar with a story. But his story, and I thought, well, his story is just going to be, you know, he's going to be one of those musician storytellers, the ones who just talk for just a minute or two and then they start playing the music. But no, the guitar was just there. It was just there in the background. And I thought to myself, he's just brought the guitar up here. He's not even going to touch the guitar. And I began to actually forget the guitar was there. His story was going on, and it was so interesting and so amazing, and I just forgot the guitar was there. And then all of a sudden, when I least expected it, he picked up that guitar, and he began to play. And he was just as good a musician as he was a storyteller. And so in a short while, I had forgotten that he'd been telling stories, and I just was so in rapture of him and that instrument. So it was with great pleasure I welcome Michael Reno Harrell on to the show. Well, it's great to be here, Eric. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. So do you have a story you can share with us? You betcha. Let's see. <laughs> I'll, got I'll tell you a little bit about my mentor, the old man that sort of got me started telling stories back years ago. An old man by the name of Stover Mason. Now, Stover Mason was my granddaddy's best friend. And I never got to know my granddaddy. My granddaddy was quite a character in his own right in the hills of western North Carolina back around the turn of the century the last one you know that that one before this one everybody called him motorcycle Eddie Cole because he rode an old Indian motorcycle everywhere he went I didn't get to know him like I said because he died in 1941 and I wasn't born till 1948 but his best friend Stover Mason sort of adopted me and uh 
he's the one, like I say, I think that sort of got me started storytelling because Stover was a, he was a crack rifle shot and uh, he was an awful good truck driver. He could, uh, he could manipulate them old mountain roads with a load of logs pretty good and he was a world class liar. And that was the part I was most interested in. I think the the reason that he was such a good liar is because he was he was a fox hunter. Now he was an Appalachian fox hunter, which ain't got a thing in the world to do with putting on a red jacket and a nice black hat and getting on a good looking horse and jumping over fences. Appalachian fox hunting is where you get you a pack of good good hounds, usually walkers, and uh, load them up in the back of a truck. Drive up the mountain till the road gives out, and turn them dogs loose, and they go off looking for old Wiley. And what you do is you get your gear and you climb to the top of the mountain and find you a little clearing up there and build you a fire, and you sit around and wait for them dogs to strike the fox. Now, a lot of a lot of fox hunters call that a fox race because the dogs don't never catch a fox. I I ain't never heard a dog catch a fox. <laughs> The fox has as much fun as we do. He run around and around that mountain. Them dogs, you know, he'll lead them around the mountain about three or four hours, and finally he'll go in a hole and say, well, that's enough, you know. And them dogs will walk around going, where in the world did he go, you know? Well, first time I ever went fox hunting with Stover, we're sitting up on top of the mountain, just got the fire built, and them dogs down there trying to find the fox, you know. And finally we heard him strike a fox. First one, oh, I found it. Next one, oh, I'm coming with you. And then pretty soon there's 15 of them running after that fox. Making the big racket around that mountain. Stover got a big grin on his face and he punched me. He said, boy, he always called me boy. He said, boy, listen to that music. I said, Stover, I can't hear any music for your dogs barking. Well, that, that eventually became my favorite song right there. We spent a lot of time in the mountains of western North Carolina listening to his dogs run old Wiley. Uh, Stover, Stover run the Candler Sawmill over in western North Carolina for a long time. He started there right after he got out of school as a young boy, and by the time he was 19, he was running the sawmill. 19-year-old boy running a sawmill with about anywhere from 12 to 18 grown men working for him. He was quite a presence. He was good at what he did, and people didn't mind listening to him, you know. Well, he run the sawmill till one day he was about 51 years old, and he come in from his work, and he looked bad. His wife said, Honey, what in the world's wrong with you? He said, Oh, no, don't feel good. I ain't felt good all day. She said, Well... She said, we better check. She felt his head. She said, well, honey, she said, you're hot as a stove. He said, yeah, I don't feel good, and I got this knot here in my stomach. She felt his stomach, and he had a he had a knot, and his stomach felt like a potato. She said, we've got to get you to the doctor over in Asheville. He said, I ain't going to the doctor. Dr. Key. Folks, you're listening to the Jonesboro train go by. That's that's tradition here at the Jonesboro Storytelling Festival. Anyway, she loaded him in the back of the truck and took him to the hospital over there, Mission Hospital in Asheville. And about the time they come out and got him on a gurney and rolled him in the door, his appendix ruptured. And he went into a coma, and they did emergency surgery on him. Well, he stayed in a coma for about four days, and finally... Finally come to, and 
had a bad fever and ten days after that the doctor came to his room one day and said Mr. Mason I'm going to let you go home today on one condition Silver said oh there can't be no condition he said you're going to let me go or not he said no he said listen to me he said I'll let you go today on one condition that you don't go back to work till I tell you you can go back to work Silver said well I've got 18 men waiting for me over at the sawmill I've got to get back to work the doctor said I know how you mountain men are he said you'll get over at the sawmill and you'll pull what what work I've done loose inside of you and you'll die right there in the sawdust pile and Stover's wife looked at him give him that look you know Stover said well all right he said I'll I'll leave here today and I'll not go back to work till you tell me I can go back to work doctor so he left that day and he never went back to the doctor. So he never went back to work. <laughs> what he did was he became a trader full time. Now, Stover's one of them people, if you had something he wanted, about three or four minutes from now, he'd have it and you'd be happy about it, you know? First time I ever went trading with him, he come by staying over at my Aunt Asley and Uncle Server's house. He come by there and talked to my uncle server about shoeing some horses and he he said boy he said i'm going to canton to march stock sale he said you want to ride over with me we'll do some trading and i was you know i was like oh yeah that's like sitting at the feet of the master you know i was going to learn to trade I wanted to be just like stover well he said i'll pick you up here about six o'clock of the morning he said now be ready I said, oh, I'll be ready. 4.30 the next morning, I was standing on the side of the road, two ham biscuits in one pocket and a bottle of Coca-Cola in the other jacket pocket waiting. Sure enough, 6 o'clock, here come that old steak bed truck, and we got in her. Started off toward toward Canton over there, and got about two or three miles up the road, and he turned off to the right, started up toward Pole Creek. And I said, why are we going up here? He said, well, we've got to get something to trade with, don't we? I said, well, I, I don't know, do it? Yeah, he said, come on. So we drove up the road there a little bit, and he pulled in the man's front yard there. And we're sitting there, I said, what are we doing here? He said, look up there in that lot. I said, what? Is, he said, look at that red mule up there. I said, are we going we gonna to try to buy that mule? He said, he said, we need something to trade with, and that looks like pretty good trading material right there. Well, we sit there. I said, ain't we going to knock on a door? No. He said, no, we'll just sit here a few minutes. Well, pretty soon we saw the window curtain come back there, and a man looked out there at us. And a few minutes he come outside, and he's wearing a jacket and some house shoes and carrying a cup of coffee. And he walked down there and said, "Can I have you boys with some?" And Stover said, "Oh, we're just looking at your mule here." The man looked in there. He said, "Ain't you Stover Mason?" He said, "Yeah, yeah, I'm what's left of him." Man said, "Well, now." You trade fox dogs, don't you? Stover said, well, I've got a few. He probably had about 300, you know. <laughs> he said, I've got a few. And he he got out of the truck there, and him and that man talked about fox dogs for about 30 minutes. And the next thing I knew was loading that red mule in the back of that truck. I never had heard him say anything about the daggum mule. And there we, Stover started counting out $20 bills in this man's hand counted out $120 in that man's hand, and I saw Stover's pocketbook when he counted that money out, and he didn't have a dollar left in that pocketbook. He folded her up and stuck it in the back pocket of them overhauls, and we started out for counting that old mule in the back. We got over there, and he backed the truck up to a 
berm of dirt there, and I led that mule off the back of the truck, and he went over and parked the truck, and I took the mule over and tied him to the back of the truck. Four minutes later, I watched the man count out $176 into Stover's hand and led that mule off. And I thought, well, I better get busy if I'm going to do mini trading here today. You know, I thought, okay, I think. It, now this was them old stock sales was like like before flea markets when everybody brought stuff to trade. They had all kind of stuff laid out there, and I thought I better get in here. You know, well, I'd come prepared to trade. I had three silver dollars in my left pocket that I'd got from my birthday, and I had a a pocket knife, a double X case in my right pocket that I'd bought at House Hass and Hardware down here in Marstown, Tennessee, give four dollars for it, brand new, about a week earlier. Well I went walking down through there going, there bound to be something here. And sure enough there was a man who had an old Edsel station wagon, had the tail gate down on it, and a bunch of old pulleys and ropes and junk like that laying on it, but right on top he had a Zebco rod and reel fishing outfit. And I walked over there and I looked at that thing and I said, I've got to have that right there. Well, that's my first mistake. That man looked at me like a sawmill hand looks at a plate of biscuits and gravy, you know, and rubbed his hands. He said, you do? He said, what'd you bring? I said, well, I ain't got much. I said, what'd you have to have for that rod and reel? He said, oh, I'd have to have $5 for that. Well, to make a long story short, we pulled in my Aunt Asley's house that evening. Stover Mason let me out of the truck. He had $223 in his pocketbook. He had a double barrel, 12 gauge, Iber Johnson shotgun. He had a double bedded axe. He had a Sears and Roebuck rototiller and the same red mule. Now, me, on the other hand, I had a $5 fishing rod that I'd give $3 and a $4 pocket knife for. That story feels. You know, it feels completely true. You know, how how close to reality are we? <laughs> Me and Stover Mason hung out a whole lot, and we did trade a lot, and he taught me a whole lot about fox hunting. That's several different experiences put together, you know. But, yeah, it's it's pretty much there. Pretty much there. Stover Mason, I, I got to tell you what happened to Stover. Stover was almost to the day our birthdays were three days apart we were almost to the day 70 years apart in age when i was 10 he was 80. stover mason died in his yard splitting kindling for his kitchen stove on my 34th birthday he was 104. <laughs> and that's the truth right there okay i'm gonna take a little side slant here because you talked about foxes i had a, a dear friend of mine who he walked in Canada, this land, and there was a hill on the land, and it was covered with new snow. And he would go out, and he walked around this small hill, and he saw these fox tracks. He was a tracker like I am. I track animals. And he saw these fox tracks, and he started following the fox tracks. And they walked around the hill, and they went up the hill, and he followed up. And he was standing on the top of the hill, and he realized that the fox prints were in such a position that they were looking where he was. And he thought, that's kind of weird. So then he went down the hill, and he started to go around the hill and follow the fox tracks. Then he realized the track, the fox tracks were inside his tracks. And he was like, wait a minute. And then he goes around the hill and back up again, following the fox. And then he sees the fox prints in his tracks. And he realizes the fox, when he realized the fox was following him, that the fox was actually looking at him over the hill. 
<laughs> While he was looking. <laughs> While he was looking. And then, so then he runs down trying to catch up with the fox, and he, he does it again. A third time. Smartest animal in the world. Stover Mason swears this is true. He said he was sitting by a creek fishing one day, and he saw a little red fox come walking across the field. Now, remember, Stover's a fox hunter, so he, he might have stretched the truth on this. He said he saw this little fox coming down there. He said, I was just sitting in the bushes there in the laurels. He said, I just sat real still. He said, that fox come down to the water had something in his mouth. He said, looked like it where some sheep had been rubbing. Had like some wool stuck in the end of his mouth down there. He said he waded out in the water real slow. Until just his head was out of the water, and I could see these little black things crawling up his neck. He said, his fleas. He said, that fox kept ducking lower and lower in the water, and them fleas all got on that piece of wool, and the fox ducked his head under and turned that piece of wool loose down the creek. <laughs> right, it's just the edge. You know, you're like, where's that edge? <laughs> Hello, this is Judith Black, and you have been enjoying the art of storytelling with Brother Woo. You started out as a musician. My granddaddy played the banjo, Eddie Cole. He was a banjo player, and my, my grandmother, Nancy Cole, played the guitar, and, and uh, Eddie's brother, Furman Cole, played the fiddle. Furman was a great fiddle player. He was a North Carolina state champion three times. They had a little band, and they played around. The mountains played for house parties, they called them back in them days. People get together and dance, you know. Uh, I remember uh, uh, Furman's son telling me one time, Donald Cole, Donald just passed away this year. Donald told me that uh, Furman told him one time that they played 21 nights in a row just for house parties and corner shuckings and stuff. My granddaddy and that bunch played, but there weren't hardly any musicians in uh, my mother's generation, in a generation between us. And then uh, in the early 60s, uh, I, I had decided I wanted to be a jazz drummer. You know, a Southern Appalachian boy wanted to be a jazz drummer. It's, I didn't even know what it was. It just sounded good, you know. And uh, then I went to visit my cousin one weekend. She is six months older than I. And she said, come back here in my bedroom. I've got a new record you got to hear. And it was the Kingston Trio's first record. And uh, Those of us who have no idea what that means. The Kingston Trio started what was called the folk revival of the 60s with a song called Tom Dooley. Uh, it's when uh, what started Bob Dylan and Peter, Paul, and Mary and all that stuff uh, back in the 60s. Anyway, we listened to that record. You know, the old... Uh, vinyl records you listen to them so many times that the groove would wear out you know so you put weight on the arm of the of the of the stylus you know on the record player arm put like a court tape a quarter on there to hold it down in the groove we got to where we had about three dollars stacked up on top of it we played it so much after that i decided i wanted to be a folk singer so i it was amazing because you know i thought Folk music came from New York City, you know. If you if you weren't in Greenwich Village, you weren't a folk singer. I, I didn't realize that my grandparents were, <laughs> were folk singers from Appalachians, you know. But anyway, that's that's how I got started, you know. And then I wanted to, uh, once I got into that, I wanted to write my own songs, and that's what I've been doing for many years. I'm I, everything I tell, I uh, or sing, I write. Do you have any music that came from your ancestors? I have influence, you know, from that era because I... Uh, is, is it direct influence? 
no, most of most of the influence that I have has been, uh, well, just becoming a musician and being around other musicians. You know, that's where a lot of it comes from. A lot of it, the early influence was from just traveling around the mountains and listening to, listen. I, I got hooked on bluegrass music early on. You know, uh, which is funny because I, I, I became a bluegrass musician because of a girl from Greenwich Village. I was sitting on the front steps of my high school playing some Kingston Trio song on a, on my guitar, you know, and had three or four little girls sitting around thinking I was pretty cool, you know. And uh, somebody tapped me on the shoulder, and uh, I turned around, and there was this girl I'd never seen before, and she was uh, she's all dressed in black, you know. This is 1963 or something. And had on those little uh, Chinese shoes, you know, those little Mary Jane-looking shoes. And uh, had a black page boy haircut, you know, and uh, and I was like, who in the world is this? And she looked at me and she said, you need to come to my house. And I said, yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> so I went down and got, I had a 1950 Ford business coupe, flathead V8 with glass pack mufflers, you know. Argh! We went down and she said, well, I'll take my car. And I, and you follow me. And she had a Renault, you know. Of course, we all thought it was a Renault. But anyway, I followed her over to her house, and the, we walked in the living room. And it turned out that her parents had just moved to my little hometown from New York. And uh, her dad was a uh, ran a chemical plant there. That's what brought them to the South. But anyway, we walked in, and her mother was reading a copy of New Yorker magazine. And I thought, well, now how cool is this, you know. You know, we don't have a North Carolina or a magazine, you know. <laughs> but anyway, she said, "My uh, mother, Michael, and I are going to be in my bedroom for a while." And I was like, "Yeah, that's a yeah." And we went back there, and uh, she sat me down on the bed. She said, "There's something I want to show you." And I said, "I'm ready to see it." And she opened her closet and she started dragging out Folkways albums. And uh, she had, she she one of the first things she said was, "She said, you know that song you were singing?" I said, "Yeah, it's a Kingston Trio song." She said. Well, actually, this is the man who wrote it, and she showed me Woody Guthrie. I'd never heard of him, you know. And she introduced me to Woody Guthrie and Mississippi John Hurt and Lead Belly and Cisco Houston and all those guys, you know, Pete Seeger. And, uh, now, all of these artists, or many of them, incorporate storytelling into their music. Exactly. They have storytelling and music. Well, you know, that's kind of what folk music is, especially the ballad stuff that we were doing, you know. Uh, they're stories. So... Uh, I became interested in in finding out what, you know, sort of the roots of the music that I was interested in. And then she uh, she, she showed me this album one day, and she said, you might like this. And it was Bill Monroe and his Bluegrass Boys, you know, the, guy, the father of Bluegrass music, the man who's credited with inventing what we know today as Bluegrass music, the ensemble especially, the five-piece band. And... Uh, so I became a disciple of the Monroe Doctrine. I became a bluegrass idiot, and uh, you know, and I and uh, Charlie Parker said one time, you know, Charlie Parker listened to country music a lot, and his friends would say, "Why do you listen to that?" And he said, "It's the story, man. It's the listen to the story," and I guess that's what drew me to to those old bluegrass songs. You know, mothers dying, babies dying, and. You know, cabins on the hill and all that. So I started uh, traveling around, you know, to fiddlers' conventions and all that, and then started trying to write my own material and and uh, 
and I found out that as I started, as my songs, my personal songs became better, my my audience, it got to the point that my audiences were actually appreciating what I was writing, you know, that, that I would say, well, here's where here's the story that I wrote the song from, and this is where I got the idea for the song, and pretty soon people were like, we want to hear that story about that song, you know. So it got to where, uh, for years, I would, you know, I would talk 30% of the time, maybe, in my concerts, you know. I would, and people had started developing not only their favorite songs, but their favorite stories as well. But, but this is also something that was happening on the folk festival stages. This was something that you were not just the only person doing this. No. This was everyone else. So, so there was this movement that I haven't really discussed on my show, so my international listeners aren't even aware of it. There's this movement in this country of folk singers who use storytelling as a transition between songs. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Roy Bookbinder is a great example. Uh, for those of you who are familiar with Roy, he's a great Piedmont blues player. He's actually done this, this festival that we're at now, the, the National Storytelling Festival. I just saw Roy this afternoon. Uh, great Piedmont blues musician uh, who uses uh, story, is a great storyteller. The stories between his songs are every bit as, as intriguing as the great music he plays. David Holt is one of those. Uh, John McCutcheon is one of those. And uh, I try to be one myself, you know. Yeah, especially singer-songwriters. You know, there's a there's a story behind the song, and people like to hear that. And as uh, as I've gotten more and more into what we call, quote, the storytelling world, you know, you wind up talking seventy percent and playing thirty sometimes, you know. But it's it it all just the the trick to me is to just make it sort of flow together, like you mentioned at the head of the show there. You know, just kind of transitions kind of naturally. That's what I try to do. So let's talk about that. Yeah. Let's try to spend a little bit of time on this concept of of that transition. Are you planning that moment, that transition when you pick up the guitar? Do you know before you start the story at what point you're going to start playing the music or is are you are you are you a play it by ear artist? I mean, where how do you plan that transition? Somewhere in the middle. Some tellers sort of memorize their material. It's you know not that there's anything wrong with that, uh, but when you hear a story once and you hear it the next time, it it's verbatim pretty much. You know, I just talk. You know, there are those of us who just sort of, especially the, those of us who do sort of personal encounter kind of stuff, you know. Uh, my t- stories typically have a, a beginning and a middle and an end, and it, but it's like, it's kind of like walking through the woods, you know. Once you get familiar with the woods, you don't have to take the same path to get there all the time. You hit the high spots, you hit all the turns and that sort of thing. But uh, I just talk about it. And uh, so I sort of know where the story ends and the song begins uh it depends you know storytelling when you become a professional storyteller especially at places like jonesboro the, t- the the schedules run like train schedules i mean uh a, t- a typical jonesboro set will be 27 minutes and the trick to being a professional teller is to nail it you know when 27 minutes comes, you say thank you very much, and you've you've brought your audience to the end. So I, I you know, you can, you, I know how long the song is, and I know if I'm in a situation like we are here, 
I can I can rattle the story, I can stretch it, I can you know kind of manipulate the story a little bit, and I know I've got three minutes and about thirty seven seconds at the end to end on my time, you know. So I can I can keep you know I keep all storytelling festivals have a clock on the floor in front of the tellers that are pretty strict about it because they like for things to run on time and we appreciate that. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm kind of glancing at the clock and I know, okay, I can add a little bit here. Or I need to delete a little bit there because when the guitar comes in and the, and the song starts, the song needs to end on time. So it's a little bit of both, you know, there's some ad lib in it, but we're, but it's, you know, there's a lot more polish to it than there appears a lot, you know, you work on it a whole lot at home before you bring it out. So you know exactly what song you're going to use when you start your story. You've already paired it. And the song is highly developed. It's completely set and polished. And the story is transitional. It is it is the necessity of the moment, meeting that time and that space. And you're watching the clock to make sure that the, the song has the time it needs to do. And, and you're always putting the song at the end? I try to, you know, because that's just sort of who I am. You know, that's what sort of identifies me. You know, I'm I'm that guy with that old guitar, you know, long hair and the old guitar, you know. So, uh, yeah, but if, you know, when you make your living at, at a craft, you know, then you have to, you know, there's a certain amount of prof- professionalism that has to go with it. And when you're working uh, storytelling events, you know, some are looser than others, but when you're working Timpanos or here or the big ones especially, the mark of a professional is to not, you know, it's to begin with, it's rude to go to take people's time you know especially in storytelling situations where uh you're splitting the set with somebody or it's an oleo you know you don't want to step on somebody else's time this is your allotted time you stay within your time so it's just like any other profession you know you make it entertaining but you know this is your this is this is these are your parameters that you work in. you can do anything you want to in here but these are the, this is where you start and this is where you end so it's just part of being a professional you know I can't agree with you more. This is one of those points that I have no toleration for of watching. And I've seen people with big names in the storytelling community totally blow through their time almost purposely. And so I have I have no toleration for that that concept of that it's okay to just, you know, I'm my name is more recognized and that person can deal with it. There is the moment when you're on stage and you're so into it and you're so into the moment and you're like, oh, man, two minutes over so let's be honest, people make mistakes, it's okay. But the professional is the person who doesn't do that. You know, and if they do do it, they clean it up quick. Yeah, well, I think, uh, you know, it's not like if you don't end in 27 minutes, they're going to shoot at you, you know. But it's, uh, this. I mean, you know, in in the music world, they say, okay, you you know, you're set, you know, if you're at a festival, they say, you got 45 minutes. You know, you got an hour, whatever. And they tend to, those of you who have been to music festivals, you know, okay, it's supposed to be over at midnight and it's 2 o'clock in the morning. You know, that kind of deal. Uh, you don't see that in the storytelling world much. It's, uh, you know, so you... And I will say that the storytelling world, it's not all, it's not a whole lot about ego, you know. There's not a lot of big egos in this world. It's kind of neat. The, so, I mean, just imagine the, imagine the parallel here. So, I actually was an MC recently at a musical event and it was running behind one of the performers early in the night thought that they were pretty important and pretty hot shot and they weren't as good as everybody else and they took up more than their fair share of time and they happened to be son of the organizer of the event so everybody kind of ignored it <laughs> and, 
and hopefully they don't listen to this. They were a, the artist before them was a world class artist, and the artist after them was a world class artist. And so the artist after them only had instead of the hour and a half they were promised, they only had 55 minutes. And my job was to tell the crowd at 12:30 that the police were going to give the organizer a ticket, and it was time to shut the event down. And believe me, it was probably the least favorite activity I've ever done to 600 screaming teenagers. You know, you can just imagine, you know. But take that parallel and let's put it into the storytelling community. Can you imagine a moment where a storytelling festival is running late and the audience does not want to leave because the performer's on stage? It's just like we can't imagine that because storytelling is, is really within these set parameters in terms of music and storytelling. There is some availability for growth inside the storytelling community to to somehow make that a little bit more... And I think the thing I really like about Jonesboro is that it does have that feeling sometimes of, oh, they're stopping. Oh, I just wish you'd keep going. Talk about the pairing of stories and songs. So you're normally creating the song and building the story around the song. Typically I do. Uh, <laughs> it sounds backwards to a lot of people. But see, I started out as a songwriter. So the song sort of always comes first to me. My songs typically are kind of stories anyway. And then it's it's pretty easy for me to, to write a story about the song after I've written the song. A lot of times, that's how I go about it. Yeah. Songs, I don't know exactly where songs come from, just out of the ether, as a lot of, a lot of songwriters say, I just told the pen, you know. I don't. I don't go along with that too much. I don't get a lot. I just get to hold the pen. I work at it really hard. But, uh, I mean, I write a lot more songs than I do stories to go with them. Uh, I write so many songs that very few of them see the light of day. You know, uh, you know, it's like fishing. You know, you don't keep all of them. Uh, you're glad to catch whatever you catch and throw back, you know, catch and release kind of. But, uh, I mean, I've recorded uh, nine CDs and two two of them are double sets and uh two d or two or three three dvds i think and uh so i recorded 135 or so original songs and i don't have that many stories to go with them but the ones there's certain songs that just lend themselves to a story you know and and those songs are the ones i really uh concentrate on writing the stories for you know the ones that say there's a good story to go along with this you know so that's kind of how I go about it. It's what What are the rules of creating a story from a songwriter's perspective? If you're creating a song, there are usually a set of expectations of how that story is presented in, in folk music. Uh, well, you know, songwriting's like knife fighting. There ain't no rules. Uh, <laughs> you know, you there are certain parameters that you that you kind of live in. You know, I mean, it's uh, you know. You don't want to write a four-hour song, you know. It's probably you're not going to get to do that very often, you know. People go, "Oh, do that one, you know, that lasts uh, three weeks," you know. Uh, so you, you know, there's certain guidelines that you kind of live within, but you always, you're always trying to reinvent the wheel when you're writing songs. So you're always looking for a new approach, you know. I'm always looking for different tunings on the guitar, different keys, different things, just things to to get me out of, you know, when you. When you write a lot, you tend to, it's like anything else, you tend to develop these patterns that you, you know, that, that work for you. 
And so pretty soon everything starts falling into those patterns, and pretty soon everything starts sounding the same. So I'm, I teach a lot of songwriting seminars around the country, and I always tell people, you know, oh, look for something different, something to kick you in a different direction. The rules, I try to keep the rules pretty lax in songwriting. Um, sometimes I'll I'll have a, an idea for a story, I'll work on the story, and then it'll occur to me, hey, that song that I recorded back in 96 on whatever CD goes with the story i can you know so you just kind of bend the story you know and uh if it's a song i've got this song called greyhound station and uh, the idea for the story came that goes along with it came from my mother's old sewing machine i have a story about my mom's my mom was a pack rat she never threw away anything because she grew up in the southern Appalachian Mountains during the Great Depression when anything you got was important you know you kept it uh, and my mom kept everything and her old sewing machine I remember back when I was a kid growing up before UPS you know or FedEx if you ordered something from Sears it came on the bus so I'm like I can use that sewing machine story and tie it in with the bus station, and then I've got the bus station song at the end of it. So you're always looking for, you know, what material do I have that fits with this other material? You're always, you know, looking in the pantry and going, okay, it's time to cook supper. What have I got to work with, you know? Oh, we could have pasta. Well, let's see. What do we got to go with that? You know, it's the same thing. You know, you're looking at. Oh, I've got these ingredients. I wonder what would happen if I put them together. You know, I might get a cake, or I might get a pot roast. You know, so I'm always looking when I write a song or a story. When I get an idea for a story, I'm always going. What else have I got that that works with? Now, every story I tell doesn't end with a song, but pretty much it does. That's kind of that's my my shtick. You know music and songs and again right now i'd probably do i do 200 shows a year i do a lot of festival work both music and storytelling festivals and in the music world i'm that guy that tells stories you know michael reno harrell singer songwriter storyteller you know in the music world they think this guy tells a lot of stories and in the storytelling world that guy that plays the guitar and sings so it's you know it's kind of both so i you know i sort of uh try to make my material match the the event you know if you know if everybody's playing a lot of music i play more music if everybody's telling a lot of stories i tell more stories you have a lot more songs than stories oh yeah songs are well again i started out as a songwriter so i've got a lot of songs like i say i've recorded 100 and probably 35 or so original songs and uh, uh, active stories. I mean, most storytellers. You know, Donald Davis is probably different because he's probably got a million. But you know, most people, your repertoire in store of you know, if you work storytelling events, festivals, and that sort of thing, your repertoire is probably I don't know thirty stories is an is an amazing amount because typ- a typical storytelling story is about twenty minutes, and if you've got an hour set, you've got three stories. You know, and if you're doing Jonesboro. You need three hours worth of material to do the biggest festival in the country. So, you know, you're talking, that's only, you know, and most of those are 10 minute oleos and stuff. So, I mean, if you got three hours worth of material, you can, you know, if you got three good hours, you know. So, yeah, stories are typically 20 minutes and songs are three. So, how does the storytelling festival circuit compare with the folk music festival circuit? 
Storytelling festivals I find to be much more eclectic. If you were to say, okay, we're going to have a rock and roll festival, that's everything from Janis Joplin to Motorhead to, you know. I mean, that's rock and roll is such a broad... I mean, okay, what kind of rock and roll, you know? Because it's so such a broad term. Storytelling is that broad. There are very few music festivals in the country that are that eclectic that would have, you know... A, a, a Janis Joplin cover band and a Navarna, you know, cover band or something. You know, it's very eclectic. Storytelling, you'll have a typical storytelling festival. If it's a where you've got say five national tellers on the bill, you'll have like a Native American teller. You'll have uh, uh, a Black American teller telling maybe African folk tales. You'll have maybe a Southern Appalachian teller telling Jack tales. You'll have somebody telling personal stories from Indiana far, farm country. Uh, you know, it's very diverse. And that, to me, is the biggest difference in music festivals and storytelling festivals. Music festivals tend to be like Winfield. I've played the Walnut Valley Festival in Winfield, Kansas, uh, a fair amount. That's pretty much an acoustic music festival, you know. It's not about rock and roll or electric guitars and all that sort of thing. It's an acoustic music festival. So everybody sort of it fits into that acoustic world. Uh, a lot of festivals are just flat out, you know, they're rap music festivals. They're all kind of music festivals. Typically, storytelling festivals are very diverse. You'll have the the tellers will be um, all over the place. This is a really valuable observation in terms of understanding the limits of storytelling festivals. And there's been a lot of storytelling festivals around the country that have attempted to copy the model that's working here in Jonesboro. Mm -hmm. And the model here in Jonesboro, in terms of the selling point of being the national storytelling festival, is very much we are storytelling whatever it is, you know. So come here, and people come from all over the country. And so many people go back to their local regions, and they try to start these storytelling festivals with that sort of we are storytelling, and they find it very difficult to grow audiences in many different locations because, and I'm taking this from what you just said, because they're not specific enough. You know, maybe if they focused on one aspect a tall tale or a scary story festival or a, that that might draw in people there are more specific. Some festivals. There are some festivals that do that. Uh, Cape Girardeau, Missouri, has a scary story festival. If, uh, the thing about it is you've got to look at the demographics of the storytelling audience in the festival world. If you walk around this festival here today, what would you say the average age of the, attendant, uh, the attendee is? What would you think? 57. I think you're probably dead on it. How many, there are very few 20-somethings, very few 30-somethings, very few 40-somethings. Almost everybody that you see at a storytelling festival is, number one, the demographics fit pretty well. They're usually, in that age bracket you're talking about, they're usually well-read. They're usually, uh, they'll travel for miles to get to, to here because they identify with this. The thing that storytelling needs to do is to figure out a way to change their their audience, the demographic, which will include younger people, or they're all going to die when I do. This is the brilliance of what's happening with the moth. Yeah, but the thing about the moth and what we're doing here is, you know, well, of course, the moth is, is a lot like folk music in that it started out as a purist movement, you know, no professionals, 10 minutes, tell your story, and now moth people have got agents, you know, like, you know. So, 
uh, I mean, I, the thing about it is, storytelling needs to open up to all kinds of, of that sort of thing. You know, those are the things that will keep it alive. You know, the things, uh, the things that 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 really, uh, you know. People tend to listen not only in music but in storytellers to people their own age. I, there are guys my age who incredible bluegrass musicians, incredible bluegrass musicians. I come from Western North Carolina, uh, Eastern Tennessee, incredible musicians. People 23 years old would rather go hear a crappy 23-year-old bluegrass band than to listen to the masters, typically. Because people identify with them, you know, the music and the stories they hear, they identify with their own age. You know, people, and there are a lot of different ways to look at it. I think, you know, story, okay, why are all the people at storytelling festivals in their 50s and 60s? Well, people in their 30s and 40s are raising families, and once the kids get gone, maybe they've got time to go, you know, what's some time we could spend for ourselves? Most everybody you see here are couples, you know? You see a guy and his wife, you know, and they're walking down the street looking at their program, going, "Who do you want? What tent do you want to go to next?" And, and everywhere, every storytelling festival I go to is the same demographic, I think, pretty much. You know, now they'll haul in a couple of school buses full of kids, you know, and they'll, you know, sit and beat each other over the head with candy sticks and stuff, you know. But there, you know, you, if you're going to get young people involved, you got to get young tellers involved, you know, if you want. Thirty somethings that you're, you got to have people that are talking about issues that mean something to thirty-five-year-old people, you know. And not a lot of us sixty-one-year-old people are talking about. Yeah, I mean, we tend to talk about things that our audience listens to. And if if you look out there and the audience is fifty-seven, there's not much point in talking about you know iPods, you know, and ripping and downloading and you know all that stuff. You know. Okay, you know, uh, my latest stuff is available online, and you can, you know, because a lot of these people, I mean, I get people walk up to me and say, man, I love your tapes, when I don't have any tapes. They've got a CD, but they're calling it a tape, you know, because that's just where they grow up, you know, that's what, when we were buying music, that's what we were buying, you know, cassette tapes. Man, I love your tapes. I listen to your tapes all the time. They've completely missed the CD revolution, and now the CD is almost dead, you know. So, again, you know, there's no point in, if the audience is 57 years old, there's no point in getting up and talking like you're 20-something, you know. If the audience is going to grow and last, you know, if this isn't the, the swan song of storytelling, then they need, to, they need to figure out some way to embrace all that other stuff, too. And, you know, the moth thing, as you say, is a very great is a very great thing because they're doing their own thing. They're taking it and doing what they do with it, which which means that it's doing the same thing that music festivals did. You know, there are oldies festivals. There's you know acoustic music. There are bluegrass festivals. There are blues festivals. Music is very spe- audience specific. You know, people that are blues fans are blues fans. People who are bluegrass fans are bluegrass fans. I mean, you know, there's terms for those people. bluegrass Nazis. You know. If, you know, if it was recorded after 1958, we don't want it. You know, it's, it's that kind of thing. People who listen to classic country, people who listen to classic rock, people who, I mean, it's, you know, when you look at the variety of stations on satellite radio, there's a reason there's such a variety, because each one of those stations represents a listening audience. And storytelling, that you know, it's that's what's going to happen to it. The moth thing is just proof. Okay, here's another way to do it. This is what we do cool 
it just makes it all stronger, you know. But you know, the, I don't know what the the, fu- the future of storytelling festivals is, you know. But I, I I would imagine that it'll it'll find its legs and become whatever it becomes. I'm just fascinated by this and this concept of how there are these. One of the things that happens in the storytelling community is that we forget that the people who are actively telling stories who aren't musicians, that we forget that there are other worlds out there of people who are doing almost the exact same thing, just in a different medium. And so I'm just fascinated by this concept of that there's this whole folk music tradition going on around us. They've already gone, they've learned many of these lessons, and they've already adapted some of these ideas and concepts. What are the lessons that we in the storytelling community can learn from that community? It's not just folk music. It's, well, you know, that's a broad term, too. I mean, it's like... uh there's that music that's not really folk music, and it's not really bluegrass, and it's not really this, and not really that. So now they've invented a term called Americana, which is kind of where I fall a lot uh, in the music end of what I do. You know, there are people are always looking to pigeonhole things, and the reason they're looking to pigeonhole things is because their marketing has to know what the demographic is. If you're going to sell it, you have to know who's going to buy it, and so you have to be able to call it something. You know, so those things. Uh, those things uh, just exist, you know. Uh, and I think in the storytelling world, you know, like you say, you might uh, you might say, okay, we're going to do a, just a, a ghost story festival like we've talked about, or maybe uh, stories for 30-somethings, you know, that sort of thing. Who knows? We'll just have to wait and see how it all shakes out. But again, you're right. Uh, since Jonesboro was the originator of what we know as the Storytelling Festival today, pretty much everybody who's come to Jonesboro and said, we can do this in our community, has pretty much followed this model, which is, again, has pretty much kept... I mean, the average attendee at Jonesboro has been here seven times. The average. So, I mean, this is Mecca for storytelling fans. And the re- one of the reasons it's Mecca is because there's this one, and the only other one they can go to is 400 miles away. They're not everywhere, you know. The storytelling world is actually pretty small, you know. The number of storytelling festivals and the no- just, you know, just ask yourself, okay, how many people make their living as professional storytellers? Okay, now how many people make their living as professional blues artists? You know, it's <laughs> the gap is pretty wide, you know. There are very few of us who can make a living doing this. This is Elizabeth Ellis, and you are listening to The Art of Storytelling with Brother Wolf. What is your offer? My offer is, if there's anybody out there who needs an old guy who plays the guitar, hey, I'm available. Uh, we have, of course, like everybody, you know, that does this kind of thing for a living, we've got promotional packages and DVDs and all that kind of junk, you know. Uh, my offer would be anybody who has an event who thinks that I might fit into, if you'll just go to michaelreno.com and hit contact, and you'll get hold of my agent, which is my lovely wife, Joan. And if you'll tell Joan that you heard me on this program, then not only will you get the promotional kit, but she'll send you a free DVD or CD of your choice, or book. We've got a book or two, too. So how's that? That's good. I want to remind the listeners that I have a free e-course called Zen and the Art of Storytelling in Seven Simple Steps. And this e-course is, 
includes little video clips on how to be a storyteller. If you are an inspiring storyteller, if you're a musician who wants to use storytelling in your in your act, this is a great way of understanding stage presence storytelling or even personal storytelling. I've had several people this weekend walk up to me and say, wow, I've been doing your e-course and it's really great, it's amazing, and it's always nice. So if you're interested, go to www.artofstorytellingshow.com slash storytelling. That's artofstorytellingshow.com slash storytelling. So do you have any last words of wisdom for the international storytelling community? Yeah. Get out there and support storytelling every way you can. I mean, if it's gonna if it's gonna grow, it has to grow from the ground up, you know. And you're standing on the ground that it needs to grow to, you know, in your community. Get out there and plant some seeds, you know. Unexpectedly, I think one of the real um, beauties, one of the real amazing moments of this conversation has been looking at how the value of niche and the value of identity, which has sort of been a theme for me this afternoon and the conversations I've been having, the value of knowing who you are and knowing who you're reaching for, and that being too general or being too inspecific can be confusing both to your audience and to your storytellers. It's been great talking to you. Thank you so much, Michael. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Eric. It's been great. This guest has written a post for the blog that can be read at www.artofstorytellingshow.com This post includes a bio and a link to the guest's website plus other additional information about our discussion. If you want to respond to this show, you can find this post and share your thoughts through the comment system in the blog comment box. If you wish to join a future show as an audience member, go to www.artofstorytellingshow.com slash alerts and sign up to the email alert system. You can buy CDs of shows and preloaded iPods on the website. The music was created by Mary Kay Croft, and we are much indebted to her contribution. This show is produced and hosted by me, Brother Wolf, and I am responsible for its content. It is released under a Creative Commons non-derivative and non-commercial license. That means you can copy it and you can give it away, but you can't splice it up or sell it. High-definition versions of this show are considered copyrighted, all rights reserved. Too tired and too excited. We'll start from the beginning. That's all right. <laughs> we had on standby, didn't we? Yeah. That's all right. I've done this three times. Need some water or something? No. Shot of liquor. <laughs> I got some. Hey, welcome to the Art of Storytelling with Children. And this is Brother Wolf. And I'm tired. Let me do the end. <laughs> Floor. Harold. Oh, 
I have such a hard name with that because I want to go Harold. Harold. Harold, as in a Harold. To Harold. To Harold. I am here with Michael Reno Harold. And... You're you're normally creating the story first, and the songs arising out of it. No, I do it the other way. Okay, boy, well, I don't look like an idiot. <laughs> so you're normally. When you work with. Only five more minutes. She's up. She's fine. She's been in a million of these. El- Eloise kicks it off. At 5.30. 5.30. Okay. What time is it? 5.19. Oh, we got to go. Yeah. We got to go? Okay, let's, let's finish let's, up. Let's go to the offer. Um, I'm out of here. Okay, see you down there. Okay. Save me a seat. Okay. Wear a hat so I can find you. 